everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Tom. Happy Easter. And uh, yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, on today's episode, what are you going to talk about, Tom? We're going to mention uh, synthetic cells and we're going to debate whether it's ethical or not ethical to work with that kind of science, that branch of science. And uh, I finally going to complete the blood substitutes part that I started four weeks ago. Okay, yeah. So if you haven't heard it, do check it out. It's uh, two episodes ago, uh, episode 16. Yeah, I think so. Episode 16. Uh, and yeah, today I'm just going to talk about a little bit about concussion. Um, I seen there was this new test that could help in diagnosing it, pitch side. So I just wanted to go into a bit more detail, cast my skeptical eye and see what the story is. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, and I just wanted to say welcome to all our new listeners and followers. Uh, thank you for, thank you for listening uh, and joining on our uh, journey in exploring science together. It was very exciting. Huge response after the last episode. Yeah, so I hope you happy. enjoyed. Uh, again, thanks to Luke O'Neill who was brilliant uh, as always on our episode, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. And I hope, uh, yeah, you'll enjoy us going forward. Uh, Evan, I have to say, sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say that you didn't dress as nice today as you did for the Luke O'Neill episode. So what's up? Yeah, no. Um, Am I not luckily, working? your listeners can't see us. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, because it was obviously Luke O'Neill. I needed to look well. Um, <laughs> how are you anyways, Tom? How are you before we go into our news headlines? Yeah. How are you getting on? Uh, it was good. It was good. Um, I had a bit of an adventure yesterday. Okay. Yeah. Do tell. It's, I... It's, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> God, this could go so, anywhere. I was, uh, I went off uh, to a neighboring city and next to Nijmegen because I was looking for um, Polish shops. So I could buy ingredients necessary for my Easter cooking. Yeah. Just before we start as well, just to say that Tom's in, in Nijmegen in yeah. the Netherlands. I'm in Dublin in Ireland. Uh, so yeah, go ahead. So yes, I was in this Polish shop. And I was getting my bits and pieces done, and I think I've spent maybe like two minutes in that shop. Altogether, I think I was like half an hour in the shop, but after two minutes, I already hated everyone and everything about that place. So I was like so ready to leave. So I didn't even finish my entire grocery list, right? Because I was just, I have to leave wh this place. Why, what's, what was so bad about because it, people? Or yeah, it kind of looked like the wet market in China. <laughs> as in like, everyone is like shouting and like, you don't know where it is. And like something were moving and I didn't know if they should be moving. And I was like, this is, this is a horrible place. There's only chaos. And I like order in structure. So I had to leave for my own self self-maintenance and you know just to make sure for my your own safety and your yeah, health perspective and my mental health but the only the one thing that i didn't buy was pork sausages right and you need pork sausages for easter anyway if you're a polish you do need it okay so i step outside i looked around and i was like i have to find the butcher i want to get the pork sausages and then i'm going home and i found the butcher and i walked inside and there was no one, there was no one in the shop, but the kind of the bell rang and this guy comes out and obviously I can't speak Dutch and he doesn't speak English as far as I know. So I just look at him and I say, <laughs> I look at him and I say, pork sausages, uh, please. And then he look at me and like, and then I realized that it was like a halal shop. 
Oh my god. <laughs> this guy so he keeps looking at me and then he's never he heard sees the word that I that I'm realizing where I am and like literally all the blood from my body just went up to my head and then I think he understood that I was just an honest mistake and um, I just didn't know what happened and he just started laughing and he said no pork sausages and I was like okay I'm sorry and I just turned around and left he was like where's the hidden camera where's oh the joke prank the shame oh god oh. ah sure these things happen it could be worse yeah but you try and be like intelligent and well read and just you know you're trying to have like um like intelligent conversations and then you do something like this and you start questioning your entire life <laughs> yeah you'll wake up at the middle of the night be like oh my god i remember oh. i did that i think yeah, we all they- have them moments Oh, and this guy then goes home, probably tells his wife about this idiot that came into the shop looking for pork sausages. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that was that, that was, was my shameful moment. Yeah. yeah. Well. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that note, then we'll just go into our the news headlines. I'll just quickly go through these, and then we go mm-hmm. into our controversial opinion that Tom has prepared. I did. So the first headline was just that the this whole. Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine we talked about this with Luke and he was very firmly in camp that it shouldn't have been paused and I think we agreed mm-hmm. and now it's first in facing further scepticism as Canada and Germany have halted its use in younger patients citing reports of these clotting disorders in recently vaccinated people uh, and now Germany's decision leaves the AstraZeneca vaccine stopped in four European countries as Denmark, Latvia the Netherlands and Norway and it's age restricted and six more and then it's only in 12 european countries that it's still being used one of these is still ireland ema chief emer cook said there is no proof of any causal link between the vaccine and the clotting disorder uh, a syndrome of which frequency in normal years has never been reliably measured um clotting disorders Cook released the preliminary EMA report into the matter and she concluded that the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine are far outweigh the risks with uh, data suggesting 85% reduction in hospital admissions and death from COVID-19 when you're vaccinated. Um, And just to kind of give more info on this clotting, so these patients sometimes exhibit this thrombocytopenia and it's Mm -hmm. a shortage of clotting platelets in blood tests even as they suffer the clots. So it's kind of, there's clots forming, but then there's shorter platelets, which is necessary for the clots. What they what this uh, study recently has shown that they think that the antigen or protein generated by the vaccine with the AstraZeneca's products is activating platelets to begin to begin clotting, and the guy who did this research, Greinacker, he said that he was expressed astonishment that their findings were being used to justify restricting the vaccine, and he thinks that people being severely sick sickened by COVID-19 outnumber those who suffer from vac- the vaccination reaction by several orders of magnitude. And to stop or avoid vaccination only on the fear of getting an extremely rare adverse reaction would be completely wrong. So so, so, yeah. I mean, so this guy, he showed uh, a pathway that could explain the clot formation. Yeah, he thinks there, there might be a, a reason behind it um, that's occurring in these really rare cases. So like well but that kind of but that's not good news <laughs> if it's very rare and 
I suppose the only thing is that there's other vaccines there. It might people be like, oh, I'd rather get the other one and wait. So I, is it I the think vaccine? it's because it's so rare that it do, it wouldn't be worth something to be worried about. But I suppose I they have to be um, people have to be aware of it. I suppose it's not something you should try and dis- dismiss. Yeah. But but then is it the vaccine or is it the susceptibility of individuals? Because I presume the vaccine will produce the same proteins in every one of them, in every in any in any, in I, any one of us. I don't know exactly how how it works or whatever. It, he it just said briefly that it was like some okay. kind of antigen or protein that's being generated is causing this clotting, but but not in every. It's everyone. very rare, like extremely rare. The EMA showed that within the European Economic Area, that the incidence is only one per 210,000 shots so it's super rare and it's very uncommon but again I think this is going to definitely increase the skepticism of the vaccine I wouldn't be surprised that so many people now won't get the second shot because of this and I think some people won't get the second shot because AstraZeneca doesn't fulfill its contracts you think I don't think it's I well I don't think people are that petty I think they'd well, rather be they, worried about they, themselves. But they don't fulfill their contracts. They, yeah, they lag in behind. So that's... Uh, yeah, that's I, know, one, I, know that's, well. yeah. I know that's happening, but I think I'm more just talking from the safety point of view. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Um, I was just trying to be sarcastic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's, it's just something to be aware of. It's just funny how at the beginning it was restricted in older people, then it was allowed in everyone, and now it's been backed only been used in older people it's completely like flipped how many different ways since the start of this when it's been released so it's uh, it seems like they're doing exactly the same thing like they did with the masks in america when it was like don't wear the uh, don't wear the masks wear the masks then maybe wear two masks it's yeah, just again yeah, yeah. again this kind of lack of concrete decisions and we yeah, kind of understand this because the situation changes very quickly well like, i do think it's good to react to like what what's happening but like it just increases the skepticism of people yeah. because like oh they're they're hiding something or why are they why is this happening why is that happening so anyways uh and then on the other story i wanted to briefly measure mm-hmm. mention the world health organization they released uh the report about the origins of what the covid 19 pandemic was mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of the people were completely panning it said that the chinese government was way too involved um, but the report says they still think it originated from the wet food markets and they still think that was the source the investigation they like investigated all their alternative hypotheses on when and where the pandemic arose concluding that the virus probably didn't spread widely before december of 2019 or that it escaped from a laboratory and they think there was clearly a lot of transmission at the market and they think the researchers and virologists, like looking at the live animal markets and animal farming should be the focus going forward. Genomic analysis and inferences based on the origins of other diseases suggest that an intermediate animal possibly once sold at a market passed SARS-CoV-2 to humans after becoming infected with a predecessor coronavirus in bats. So um, I think it most probably, they said it came from bats and then went to pangolins and then something else than humans jesus another um, thing yeah yeah it's, it's yeah just a bit like just mixing with everything uh and yeah i think 
everyone's now been i think there's way more support behind this whole lab leak theory i think the cdc under trump like cdc head is crazy that he thinks it was a lab leak and um i, I think who i think who had its own suspicion as well that it could could have been the lab leak uh well yeah yeah uh i suppose you can't rule anything completely yeah. out but it's i think the odd that they reckon it's very the odds of it is very low I suppose the thing is, is that the head of like the a world-renowned laboratory in coronaviruses is in Wuhan, and Wuhan was the origin of this pandemic. It's just a really big coincidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing about the lab leak theory, they said the report when the report authors visited the institute, its scientists told them that no one in the lab had antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, which they think rules out the notion that someone there had been infected in an experiment and had spread it to others. The Wuhan researchers also said they hadn't kept any live virus strains similar to SARS-CoV-2. And they further explained that everyone in the lab had safety training and psychological evaluations and that their physical and mental health are continuously monitored. So I was just like, wow, they're really uh, like you show up and you're like, How, what's your mental state right now? Because I'm sure like, why would they be doing that if they didn't know before I... pre-pandemic? Like they hardly were thinking, oh, this could potentially be used to start a pandemic so it's I, I was just like i think that's a bit extreme like defense like oh yeah we were doing mental health evaluation so it couldn't have been someone yeah evan that just sounds like a wellness or mindfulness check really yeah yeah i uh, yeah definitely look um, this is not this is not the podcast where we explore conspiracy yeah, conspiracies exactly. but um i have my own thoughts about this now yeah <laughs> but i don't think this is the right place and time to <laughs> disclose them <laughs> tom releases unfiltered thoughts on our new podcast conspiracy <laughs> thinking like two opposite podcasts <laughs> where we discuss so, completely different on um, one complete concrete science the other just complete nonsense yeah so now um, we talk about science tune in later for an absolute wild yeah. ride uh yeah and the, oh, the only thing was like yeah this scientist panned it and they said that they didn't give china didn't give them access to the raw data files so there was no way of them knowing it was only what china had provided so it's just like it doesn't go deep enough into finding it and it's just crazy to think that it's over a year we still don't know where it yeah. came from like how is that possible like we should be way closer than we are but yeah that's the thing is like because the world health organization they, they they're being criticized for not holding china accountable but they're giving almost no tools to compel any country to cooperate uh and yeah that's all they can do so look we can just wait and see what happens and um wait and I see mean, if they do another hopefully they'll do further they will definitely do further reports and we'll just keep an eye and see what is yeah said, that's, so. that's all you can do and the chinese government's definitely trying their best they have i think three different vaccines out being tested mm. in the south america i think yeah um, it's funny we were watching a video it's youtuber wendover productions and he was talking about how china's trying to influence them get influenced through these vaccines and they're basically like pumping them out to all these other countries to try and like get support or kind of mm. yeah control i suppose of these countries and it's kind of they're not really giving it to their own citizens uh, at the moment well the, because because the there is no like the pandemia there is not really happening anymore in china no that's why they said with their vaccine trials it was kind of limited because yeah they they're they so good at containing it yeah and that usually with these 
uh, vaccine studies, you need like a certain amount of cases to occur before you like do your yeah. interim analysis, and they couldn't do that because they didn't it hit may- the cases. So yeah. that's why they were further behind. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a uh, it's another way of China trying to exert its power. Anyways, I think they just trying to do a good job and <laughs> helping people out you think they're trying to exert the power you're so <laughs> innocent you're sweet innocent food after my halal accident i'm like <laughs> treating everyone with love <laughs> i don't want to like cast a shadow on anyone now <laughs> okay grand okay so if you want to go into your uh sure controversial up Unpopular opinion. Unpopular. opinion. I don't think it's controversial, or maybe it's. But anyway, um, recently uh, there was news in um, on scientific websites and and what's not that there was a first artificial cell created, and um, I started looking a little bit more into it, and it's it's not actually artificial cell. It's a it's a synthetic cell, which is a, a slight difference into which I will get now. So the whole story starts actually in 2010 when the first synthetic cell or bacteria cell was created. And what it means is that this bacteria derives from a coating, which is the cell wall um, of already existing uh, species like mycoplasma bacteria. But scientists extracted everything from that cell, so left like in an empty shell, uh, they designed an artificial DNA. So basically, they imagine that you have an open Word file and you just type in ATCG yeah. in the different combination, and this is how you write the genetic code. And uh, and they they wrote it, they synthesized that DNA, and they injected into the they injected into the bacteria. They give it a, a boost start to kind of like a, you know when you have to like start the car with wires. Yeah. yeah. And um, and that bacteria is alive and it was living. And the whole genome was 1.8 million base pairs. And it could divide, could it? It it did divide, but back in 2010, um, because the genome the scientists inserted was like skipped from all of the unnecessary genes that they thought uh, at the time were unnecessary. Yeah. So yeah. the colonies it was forming, they were kind of irregular, um, weirdly shaped. So then uh, this paper that came out now, this genome they actually added a little bit more genes that at the time they thought were not relevant for the shape uh, of the bacteria and the division of bacteria and now it came to the their attention that uh, actually they discovered seven genes that they didn't know before that are involved in the uh, bacteria division so um, obviously they learned something from it and it's great uh, this uh, this is an important step towards engineering synthetic cells that uh, do useful things. Such cells could act uh, as small factories, produce drugs, foods, and fuels. Um, and this is this is just a quote from the interview that these scientists give. And just to put in perspective, this variant, this new variant from this recent paper that came out, has fewer than 500 genes. And to put that number in perspective, E. coli bacteria and our God has 4,000 genes and the human cells has around 30,000 genes. And these guys were able to use less than 500 genes to maintain all the necessary function of a bacteria to survive and divide. Wow. So that's... It was um, just like, just, so it just resembled a completely normal bacteria that you wouldn't synthesize. Yeah, but the difference is... So exactly like the, the shell 
yeah. is something that already exists. That's why it's not completely artificial life. That's yeah, why it's yeah. a synthetic life. And uh, but the DNA, the, the the code of life per se, is completely written by a human by a computer, uh, made manufactured by manufactured. And what are they going to do with this? Them? Like, uh, well. Uh, well, this is this is more kind of a fundamental research rather than applied research okay. because now you're learning. You now I already said that they discovered that there were genes involved in cell division that they didn't know of before. So you already kind of enrich your let's say the the pool of knowledge that we have in that field. Um, no, of course, the, for the future plants, they mean uh, as I said, pr pr they can use bacteria to produce drugs. Uh, Foods. Yeah, I don't yeah. really know what they mean by foods. Uh, I, fuels. It makes more sense because um, the some sort of chemical reactions. I can see that, but I don't know what they mean by bacteria producing foods. Um, I suppose it's to be seen into the future. But this is as exciting as it is. This brings its own kind of uh, ethical, uh, ethical and kind of uh, warning signs. So it was. I noticed when I was reading about the synthetic bacterias about the ethics of it, I noticed that loads of people are picking up that the scientists start to use completely different language when they describe the synthetic cells. So now when we talk in, in biology and in genetics, we, um, you know, we, we, we use this terminology that is very familiar to us in, in the context of biology and life. So DNA and, and all the names of enzymes and everything is very much inert in the field of biology but these scientists who actually work with the synthetic cells they they stop using this typical uh, phrases that you would use in the field of biology and they replace them with the fields that would use in the engineering so the thought is that by doing so you separate the synthetic life the synthetic cells from a life that we know so you already mm -hmm. by using a different language you draw this division that in that in the future can 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 serve as a justification that this is actually not a real life because from the very beginning you were you were using a language that normally refers towards machines and not towards a, a living a living organism so this is one of the things that they already noticed and they and they um, this study about this synthetic life started in before 2010 around 2008 and this is where they started noticing that the, the scientists create this division to see the synthetic life as not an actual life, but okay. more as a mechan mechanical and um, um, and it's more. And then people free people feel that it's easier uh, to justify the exploration of something because it's if it's not real life, you don't have that many uh, warning signs in your head to stop you from exploring something. You know, like yeah, you desensitize yourself. Yeah. To yeah, exactly. So, um, so now there is a there is a there is this thing that synthetic biologists would be creators instead of researchers, and humanity would move from the effort of manipulation into a deliberate reinvention of nature. Mm. So the current biology works on the basis of manipulation. Even with the CRISPR, you are you start with the template of DNA that has been created in vivo by bacteria or by cells or whatever and you just manipulate that right you change nucleotides but you're still working off the original uh natural template yeah in here it's not the case because everything because you actually create the life as they say they won't be researchers anymore they'll be creators yeah, yeah. so 
so you already give yourselves a more room for uh, exploration and, and such because you know it's it's your invention and you you can see it from the perspective of having a complete autonomy and control over it because it's your creation like you know yeah. i cooked my dinner i'm gonna throw my dinner or eat my dinner it's up to me what i'm gonna do with it yeah so i uh, i think it's a definitely new and exciting field of this synthetic uh, biology or art which will probably at some point move into the artificial biology artificial life creation um i think it's hard to see a danger when when we're talking about bacteria cells right because <laughs> At the end of the day, is a bacteria with the yeah. less than 500 genes, so it's hard. It's very hard to kind of see what to, is the danger. Yeah, what's the what's to worry about? Yeah, but the f ex just because we deal with the things like what is life and the exploration of of life and stuff like that, I think, yeah, I think I think it's definitely exciting, and I want to see this moving forward. But I think there should be a degree of carefulness and yeah not to kind of press ahead blindly but kind of every now and then maybe just slow down yeah no i get what you're saying that you like even though it's an elementary step with bacteria it's still be something that we should be thinking about because it's like if you're willing to manipulate a bacteria what are you are you willing to keep going mm-hmm I, f I think this might have been a conversation they had when they originally split the atom for the first time or when they created new fundamental elements. Um, when you talk about splitting an atom or fusing atoms, um, you're doing something that only nature has done before. Like uh, if you're fusing atoms, like in mm. fusion reactors that they're working on now, you're replicating something that happens on the sun. Like that's a um, very fundamental part of nature and something that you can harness a lot of damaging power with like see with with um, nuclear fission i.e splitting an atom mm. what happened when we um, played with that fundamental part of nature was there was a lot of destruction from nuclear bombs but also a lot of good so i think it's i think uh you could look at that conversation or that aspect of you know playing with the fundamental forces of nature and yeah. maybe take some lessons from that. I'm more, I'm, I'm completely on, on board. Um, and I agree with what you said. I think my worry kind of lies a little bit more in, in the future. And it's just all around ex, um, exploitation of life. I think that's what um, could become an issue because it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to think of it as a, a real threat when yes it's it's only a bacteria cell but like a, a few hundred years from now it could be a little bit more complex life form and so on and so on and uh it, i think it's a realistic fear looking at the history of humans that explore exploration of other life forms is not something that uh, we would be hesitant to do i think we will they will people will be wary of it going into it i think uh, and I think something it will be discussed, but yeah, uh, I don't know. It's it's kind of like, I mean, we do have a history of slavery <laughs> on our cards of history, like you know. And if you completely dehumanize a creation, which starts with the language they use now to describe the processes, mm. if you don't see something as a valuable form of life equal to you, what stops you there from? Ex mm. exploitation 
I, I'm hearing some religious undertones in this song. <laughs> no, this is, uh, I don't want to bring any religious undertones to it. It's just looking at the past. Yeah, they, I, I, some their people always thought of themselves as superior to other people. And imagine it is easy to have the same way of thinking when you look at something that is not human, yet it's 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 alive. Especially if it's going to have a consciousness about at some point. I think that's massively removed from what is happening currently, though. Like uh, there could be an unknown wall that they could hit in terms of how complex that they could go. Are we giving more scrutiny to it because of an abstract thing like life? <laughs> like a blade of grass is living. Yeah. I'm trying to think, like, is this because I just think, yeah, being able to, like, determine how things pan out where it's, where do you have, compared to where it is now, where you have no control, it's kind of like um, being able to manipulate is that kind of ethically right? And, um, like I think if it progresses the science is always helpful and yeah um but like the other thing I was thinking is um so like if you designed uh one of these like a, a human cell mm-hmm. like synthetically does mm-hmm. that mean like there's no ethical constraints because it's not like they're it's not counting it as a living so they can do what they want because it's well, not real it's not a living cell so they could they could like grow it in a lab like grow it into tissues and it's like well it's not living it's not a, it's not from an embryo it's not from stem cells it's like a, it's completely synthetic that means yeah. it's we can do what we want there's no ethical considerations well that could alleviate the the issues of the stem cells right because if you can design the cell that can perform and you can design the cell to be this and this type of cells if you can if you can do the same thing at the tissue level then you know problems such as like transplants and what's not would be very easily resolved reminds me a little bit of synthetic meat and if vegans would eat that or not it's the exact same on a biological level to like cow meat but they technically would not be breaking their veganism to eat it yeah because it never was alive right and 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 stuff like that but anyway one of the objections uh that people throw out there i see if one of you just agrees to it you don't have to give me like a huge explanation objection one against creating artificial cells is simply that by doing so it would be unnatural and hence unethical ah like you you've already you've already answered this (laughs) i think this is brought up with any technological advancement I think I mentioned to you during the week about uh, harnessing electricity yeah. or harnessing the waves, like you're interfering or playing God. The whole idea of doing something because it's not natural, that's not a very solid thing to grasp. I think, And I think it could just, you can just cast everything away then and just ignore everything. Yeah, because what's natural these days, yeah. right? I think if if someone would agree to that, then they would have to throw out vaccines because vaccines are not really... A natural thing that happened and we're gonna wrap it up on this one because we don't want to make this segment too long is um, it is wrong to create life from no non-living matter because doing so would foster a reductionist attitude toward life which undermines the sense of awe, reverence and respect we owe we own it owe it so, so basically you demin- you 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 re- you diminish the importance of life by creating an life uh from non-living matter 
Yeah, but then you're the other opposite way you're thinking of it is that you could say, oh, we're putting too much uh, respect and too much um, associating way too much high reverence to like a natural way versus an unnatural way, which um, I don't think necessarily needs to. It, like it's all it's all happening not like it all's just chemistry or biolo- biology yeah. how sperm and egg come together they fertilize they, d- yeah. they divide and you form a, a fetus like um to do that outside a lab in a lab like i know that's not natural but then it's not diminishing what's happening there yeah like they're not that like, if any like whatever comes out of it it's not less necessarily worse or like as well like with a artificial insemination in um in in animals in cattle if you were to like you're inseminating a, a cow and then they have the calf does that calf any less than it would be if it's a and and, Done, and like yeah. like naturally so yeah. i don't think that's a great argument to be honest i think for this as well you could maybe try and make a distinction between conscious life and non-conscious life um because i think really the respect we want to maintain is the respect for conscious life. Uh, for me personally, I wouldn't place as much respect on, um, like, if if we can personally gain things from manipulating non- unconscious life, yeah. Like, uh, you know, genetically modifying crops so that they're healthier or easier to grow or less susceptible to rot, things like that. Um, I wouldn't class it as uh, in the same category as mm-hmm. conscious life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I also think that these two arguments they were rather um, poorly thought out and uh, kind of easy to to argue against them. And uh, I can also just say that when I study genetics, is at the most basic level of biology. I think I think it's very hard to go even more basic than genetics to study life. And um, and every time I see something, I'm like amazed. And you know, and when you when you look at things at the genetics level, what you're working with is just a bunch of atoms glued together that form different molecules. So it's not essentially life per se. It's just a bunch of molecules that do certain things. And I'm amazed by them. And then you know, I talk to some people, and I know they are made of non-living molecules. And I'm still amazed by uh, by some people, not so much about some other people, but like no, that's that's a different conversation. Yeah. So I think. Um, I think yeah. this whole synthetic biology is exciting and we should just be careful. Yeah, no, no, I I just think the last thing I wanted to say is like, we need to come up with a line. I suppose it's very difficult, but where you're like, okay, this is acceptable. We can like, we can, so just say in, if you're working with the synthetic cells rather than other kind of normal health, like biological cells, it's like, okay, what's the line in that, what we can manipulate and how we, what, what? What's the line in manipulating these cells convert to normal cells? Like, because I suppose in a way is like, do you treat them as living? Do you think like these cells could potentially become like a conscious being? Is this something you want to worry about? Or is this like, no, they're completely separate. They're not conscious. They're just synthetic cells that we can manipulate. We don't need to worry about. I suppose that's the whole the way you want to look at it, I suppose, mm-hmm. in a way is like, if if you think that they're giving both equal weight to both then is it right to treat one differently than the other um or should we be like no it's they're purely different we can do what we want and we're, it's not ethically morally bad wrong to do that 
on a side note to this if you want to make some money i would say invest in natural foods companies right now because this is another thing they can sell natural <laughs> food with right beside the non-gmos you'll have uh, non-synthetic crops um, <laughs> or non-synthetic life yeah com- yeah coming into your store 2025 <laughs> i suppose we can do whatever you want with them as long as they don't start talking back to us once they start talking back to us then we know th- there is something wrong I have feelings yeah i can mimic feelings um robots <laughs> okay let's not go any deeper into that because <laughs> we're yeah. gonna change the nature nature of this podcast yeah so let us know what you think should we play god synthetic versus biological cells is there a difference what do you think let us know uh, yes curious to see your feedback thanks for that tom no um problem, so yeah i'll go into my news or my main story you mentioned this on twitter the other day i was going to talk about concussion uh basically this new test that could be hopefully used pitch side and i just wanted to kind of explore this a bit more and see what they were research they were doing mm-hmm let me start off by saying I'm no way an expert on this topic, but I do have experience in diagnostic testing. So I wanted to explore this test, see what's possible and if it could actually be used pitch side in detecting concussions. Um, and yeah, it, I think concussion is such a topical issue right now, especially in uh, sports like uh, NFL and rugby. Uh, and especially in rugby now, there's a group of former players that are suing the suing the game's authorities after being diagnosed with early onset dementia, which they think was caused by during their rugby careers. Uh, and there was just one player, Dan Scarborough. He played twice for England, and he said that he can't, yeah he he has memory loss, doesn't remember games. He says that like sometimes he'd only come around in the changing room, couldn't remember what happened previously. Uh, and in the changing room, he wouldn't know who he was, where he where he was, uh, and just completely out of it, like just completely dazed, confused. And he also would suffer from tunnel vision, and he'd play like that for 20 minutes in a game before it would, would uh, rectify itself. So it was obviously brain injury, but this was back in the early, not even that long ago, like 20 years ago, and he would still play with it, and there was no mention of this brain yeah. injury. And now he's been diagnosed with early onset dementia and he most probably has this chronic traumatic encephal- encephalopathy or CTE. CTE yeah. yeah. Um, from this traumatic brain injury from rugby. And there was also this other famous case. Um, he's an NFL player. I wonder, did you ever hear Aaron Hernandez? Yeah. He yeah, was yeah. on trial for killing another player and was on stage indicted for another double, homi- double homicide, but he was cleared. Uh, and he committed suicide and a post-mortem diagnosed him with the CTE, which many speculate could have contributed to the behavior he was having. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of shocking in a way that this is what was happening. And it could be still happening uh, in a lot of these sports. And, so, the, and the rugby federation, you said they, they, they turned their backs on the players. Like nowadays, there is a lot more protocols in place okay. for pro- concussion. Uh, I'll mention that a little bit later, but mm-hmm. back then there was not there was oh, yeah, no sorry. protocol, so um, it was kind of like you're on your own. And I suppose this is why they're trying to sue them because if 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 early onset yeah. dementia, they're they're most probably going to have a shorter lifespan or life. So Quality. to try and get some, yeah, I suppose to get money, uh, maybe from the authorities to help their families. 
So yeah, what is concussion then? So concussion, it's a mild traumatic brain injury that usually happens after a blow to the head. Um, it can also occur with violent shaking and movement of their head or the body. So yeah, rugby and NFL definitely are big ones. And even in like striking sports, boxing, yeah. UFC, sorry, MMA. MMA. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you don't have to lose consciousness to get a concussion or experience this persistent post-concussive symptoms. And yeah, signs of a concussion, usually they can appear a few minutes or even hours after a head injury. Uh, our days even, so you still need to be on the lookout even oh, after wow. the event. Um, and yeah, and the symptoms include headache, dizziness, nausea, memory loss, clumsiness, mood swings. And yeah, there's not much they can do to treat it. Have you um, been concussed? Could, I've never been concussed, actually. I've had headaches from like either heading the ball or maybe jerking uh <laughs> jerking my head maybe but i've never had i've never had anything too bad okay uh, not that i can really remember have you i've never participated in combat sports or in <laughs> rugby or nfl so I'm you're a lover free. not a fighter i'm a lover and a fighter um yeah and yeah i've heard like uh play- teammates who've had it mm-hmm. and They've they've been suffering migraines continuously afterwards for like months. Oh. It's very it's very extreme. And yeah, this all you can do is take paracetamol. Yeah. If you're worried after the event, you can go to the hospital, but and they can mo- measure your vital signs, do your um, MRI. But yeah, there's not a huge amount they can do. And then CTE. So these two aren't necessarily related. Like CTE can happen. Um, concussion doesn't always lead to CTE. Mm-hmm. Concussion it can just happen if there's one or once or whenever you might get a blow to the head. CTE is when it's uh, linked to repeated blows to the head, which you see not only in NFL, yeah, but in boxing or MMA. Uh, and it was first identified in boxers in the 1920s, and they were labeled punch drunk. Uh, and then 20, 2005, pathologist Bennett Umalu he found that first evidence of it in the brain in a former nfl player and he he made there was a movie made about him it's called concussion it's like will smith's in it yeah um so that's if you want to look into that as well further and usually occurs generally eight to ten years after you experience this repetitive mild traumatic brain injury which these rugby player this guy must probably suffered from uh and usually what happens is within the brain you're just like a reduction in the weight with atrophy in your frontal and temporal cortices mm-hmm. which can progress to your hippocampus amygdala so like different parts of your brain just get kind of wasted away so you said atro- atrophy yeah yeah okay so yeah okay okay um and yeah they just generally progress to dementia and at the moment there's not really much can be done to prevent this uh, and you mentioned about how do you diagnose it there's no way of diagnosing it in living individuals um there's no actual biomarkers really that can be used and the only way you can do it is through post-mortem so it's kind of like the prion disease with uh like um in people when you have the mad cow disease you can't really that you know the variant cjd yeah you yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, you they, can't you, you can't really tell when they have it it's only uh, like post-mortem. the full diagnosis is made post-mortem yeah yeah mm, yeah so that's the i think that's something that's a field of research that i'd say they're definitely um investigating in um yeah, and it's to be estimated that 1.6 to 3.8 million sport-related mild uh, traumatic brain injuries occur in athletes annually. But the exact number is unknown because a lot of people don't realize they've had a concussion or 
they would like lie about it like shockingly it has been shown that in 43 percent of athletes who had suffered a concussion they deliberately concealed their symptoms um because they didn't want to either be not present at the game didn't want to come off like like as well i suppose in other sports where like a performance is you get paid or and and as well a concussion as well it's like oh is it in my head i it's just a headache yeah um, I mean, so you, when you're on the top, right, like top athlete, and yeah. like, why would you like? You have to play. Yeah, and as well in the FNL, FNL, FNFL, uh, like that's your job. You're just hitting people or tackling people, and it's like, yeah. well, this is my job. Like, this is I'm just have to get this used to it. This is what they do. It. Yeah, um, yeah, but this is again. So obviously, it's been underreported how many actually suffer from the concussions. Um, they say prevention is like with helmets, but then they're debatable how much that helps. So now, like primarily focused on improved recognition of concussion and head trauma with proper return to play protocols after possible brain injuries is re- important to decrease the significance of future impacts. So this is what they're trying to do. Identify it early, give them time to for the brain to recover mm-hmm. and then let them allow them to yeah. come back in um and you see this when we're when watching the rugby the six nations on now so many players go off for six nations or they go off with a head injury assessment way more now than they've ever did before this uh, and usually they don't come back on because they're just too worried um about it and when when a concussion is suspected that at least they're yeah they're immediately removed from play and they have a neurological examination. It's like cognitive and balance testing. Mm-hmm. And they have these standardized sideline tests, sports concussion assessment tool and balance error scoring system. But the it can be useful. But the thing is, there's no baseline with these tests. So in a way, you're kind of like, what? you have nothing to compare it to. You're kind of like, okay, I think they do half balance and stuff like that. So it's still not ideal. And if they are diagnosed with a concussion, they cannot return to play that day and they should be managed by a healthcare practitioner with demonstrated competence in the treatment of concussion and they should be free of symptoms or back to their baseline before they are cleared to begin the five-day return to play protocol. So this is just the background I wanted to give. Yeah, but it it seems like they have protocols in place now or at least they have like a plan to follow. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, But like what... Some players is like there's one player Johnny Sexton. I'm mm-hmm. sure you know one with Ireland. I, I know of him. Yes, I know. You of know him. what one player? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's no need for that to no, make it public. No, um, but like he goes off a concussion all the time, and like he's back in games. So like mm-hmm. he has had concussion. He's recovered. He's having concussion again. Mm-hmm. Like that's not good for your brain. No. Uh, like how? There's no way to know how fully his recovered his brain is. And it's totally, I'm not saying like he has a brain injury or like he should stop playing, but it's just, it's, it's a brutal sport. Like it, you're getting smashed the whole time, yeah. especially in his position. Um, Yeah. So R- remind suppose, our listeners what position he's playing at. He plays as the out half for number 10. So yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Generally the players always t- target him because he is a pivot point for like attack okay. in, the, in the game. So, yeah, basically, okay, so what is this new test? So it was led by the University of Birmingham. One part is, like, it was partly funded by the Rugby Football Union. So I'll mention that why why I think that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. at the end. But, um, yeah, so they've helped, they've 
identified by America's in saliva that may allow the possibility of non-invasive clinical tests for concussion. And he said that uh, the differences in the salivary concentration of these biomarkers are measurable within minutes, which would help aid rapid diagnosis. Uh, And yeah, these biomarkers are called small non-cording RNAs. So I'll try and explain this, what these are to Mm -hmm. people who mightn't be that familiar i'm not that familiar with them anyways um they're like so rnas is like your dna except single-stranded and it has a different kind of base as well than dna and it's like it's kind of very i'd say a lot of people are aware of it because of covid because sars-cov-2 is an rna virus so we have these rnas in our body as well they do different jobs you have your messenger rna translation rna etc etc so these small non-coding RNAs, they don't do any, they don't have a role in uh, transcription or translation or anything like that. And they're 20 to 200 nucleotides in length. Uh, and it's like a really new field of research. Um, they're only kind of really being um, recently described. Um, and yeah, there's there's loads of different types of these small non-coding, there's loads of different types of these small non-coding RNAs. There's microRNA, small nu- nuclear RNA, etc etc and yeah it's a really new field of research that they're using to be used as a potential class of biomarkers to be explored especially within uh, neurogenerative diseases because again a lot of these neurogenerative diseases it's hard to get a blood test that can tell you Mm. if they if there's a um if there's a disease present or not so this is like even more elementary like rather than a protein you're looking even even fundamental more fundamental than that yeah they're looking at these so they were like okay we'll have a look at these small non-coding rnas yeah they've been shown that they've been linked to other diseases such as cancer and alzheimer's Uh, and it's kind of like we're coming we're coming to a time in science where we have high throughput next generation sequencing so you can sequence the whole genome of a person relatively very quickly and they were able to identify because we have a lot of our coding gene DNA, and then there's this whole region of other uh, non-coding like, DNA, non-coding DNA, and other RNAs that they're like, what well, we're not sure what the role is. Um, so now we're able to study these molecules like we've never been able to do before because we didn't have the technology. So in this study, they collected samples from 1,028 players, and then during head injury assessments. They collected 156 at three different time points. So this was in the game, post-game, and then 36 to 48 hours post-game. They got a saliva sample. And this was then in the 2017 to 2018 season, they were able to identify a combination of 14 of these small non-coding RNAs. uh, And they were highly accurate at identifying concussed players from all other groups. And this is because they compared it to the head injury assessment and they kind of use that as the gold standard to try and like see how much these correlated to if there was a head injury assessment or if they had a concussion or not. So they come up with like a, um, a profile? Yeah, they came up with a profile that they thought would be that increase within the saliva that would indicate uh, a concussion. I suppose the issue is that they're using a gold standard, which is the head injury assessment to assess concussion, which isn't a great gold standard because... 
again you don't have a, a baseline so you're kind of like okay I think they have a concussion I, I, I they scored this on this uh, assessment mm-hmm. chart so in a way it's not great but I suppose in, in a, when they had this very high accurate uh, correlation it's very impressive in a way that it's like okay wow it's it kind of these protein these small non-coordinating RNAs they were increasing at the same rate as if the these people who were having the concussion and uh did they uh, did they measure did they identify the non-coordinating RNAs in in healthy people to see if the profile uh, is different yeah well so they, yeah they, yeah uh yeah they did this in the in the healthy um players not suffering from concussion yeah, and i suppose yeah. they were looking to see if these levels would increase after they had um after I think, they had a, a, a concussion or a, a head injury assessment do you think that the players are, are a good control model for non-concuss individual or would it not be better just to gather a few nerds from the library and take their saliva <laughs> i guarantee you that they would have never been concussed I'm thinking what they did was the players that didn't have a concussion versus players that did have a concussion as evaluated from a head injury assessment and they kind of compared the two because that would be a better comparison. Like they both are playing, they're exposed to this different environment. But then I suppose you might, you might risk of missing out if you're using them as a control because they could be suffering from some head injuries. That was my not, point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not 100% sure what the control was. I, I don't know if it was the players or if it wasn't. But they, they decided, they thought that these 14 small non-cording RNAs were mm-hmm. indicative of kind of concussion. Mm-hmm. So they looked prospectively in the 2018 to 2019 season and they were like, okay, we'll look at the biomarkers and see, could this successfully predict if they would have a concussion mm-hmm. and it showed that there was a it was able to determine if there was a concussion in 94 percent of cases oh wow um which is really high and they said like these small non-cording rnas they're stable and they're quite straightforward to assess so that's quite useful and they do develop rapidly which means that they could be used in a very quickly situations where they'd be like okay do these people have concussion so um, it was very impressive, really high uh, rates of uh, agreement. Um, and yeah, they're trying to work on this to make this an over-account, over-the-counter test for elite male athletes. So yeah, it's I kind mean, it, of... Uh, it would be super useful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Looking at the paper, though, I'm still skeptical. I don't know how they would do this pitch side because it's a real-time PCR. So like they can't even do that with covid right now to bring that portable because you need to it's rna so you need to convert it to dna and then you need to do your pcr so i don't know how they would manage to do that pitch side that's still something that would take like four hours to do so i don't think it's going to improve like return to play in a game i think it's only like afterwards unless the technology improves a lot more well i think if you collect the saliva and the and the non-coding RNAs have to be there, then I don't think... Yeah, does it... The question is, does it have to be a PCR? Can you have... If you know the sequence of your microRNA... Oh, sorry, the non-coding RNAs, can you create a a complementary template that could be tagged with a chemical or something and upon recognition of the of the non-coding RNA, there could be like a 
chemical reaction or, or something like that, like a change of color or something like that, you know, like does it has to be a PCR for detection? Because mm. if you have the microRNAs there, sorry, not microRNAs, if you have the non-coding RNAs there in your sample, like they are there. So yeah. if the PC, if they really want to make it as a page site uh, examination, I don't think the PCR is the right way to go. C can they can they do it other way? We like the, the beauty about the DNA and RNA is the highly uniqueness because because of their complement mm. uh, the, the the basis and the complementarity. Yeah, I still think like I don't know if any if there's any rapid tests out there that actually make use of. No, it's like non-protein where they use like nucleotides or DNA or RNA. I don't know if that's even possible. And especially this is 16 or sorry, 14. Yeah. So you're having to do these for 14 and then you're having to control that all of these are definitely working. So it's a lot of work. I suppose maybe further work <laughs> might help narrow this down. Um, but I think at the moment, I don't see how this could be available pitch side. They're just mainly focused on like, oh, it increased rapidly. So it has the potential, but... Um, yeah. At this moment, I still think players are still going to need a head injury assessment on the pitch to come off, and they're not really going to be able to come on again until they get the result. Maybe it'll help uh, if knowing if a, a concussion really helped, if really, sorry, if a concussion really occurred, but I can't see how, yeah, how much useful it is at the moment, um, except confirming true head with head injury assessment. Yeah. The other thing as well, like I mentioned that the Rugby Football Union, they have mm -hmm. financial interest in this intellectual property connected to the biomarkers. So it's kind of a bit messed up that they're going to make money off this because this technology is going to be used in detecting concussion, which is what their sport is causing. Um, I don't know if their aim is to make money off this. I would hope that they would be like, this is something we want to make av available to rugby players, professional rugby players or... Uh, like not 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 make money off it because uh, this is just to help with their because I think the rugby has got a lot better and that they ensuring that the proper head injury assessments are done and not dangerous high tackles aren't being uh, performed you get you get red cards if you're mm -hmm. like above the shoulder now or shoulder yeah. charges so that's something I was like they shouldn't not, not be getting they shouldn't be making money off this like um and as I well mean, like some of the writers as well they were founding members and shareholders of a spin-off company hoping to monetize this i always still still like w wary of these companies that are like when they come up with these brilliant results and they're like oh yeah we're making a company out of this because you're always like is there something that they're hiding and that's why i'm just being skeptical i have no proof of that i'm sure it was completely above board but um, and the last big was like it doesn't indicate the level of damage to a player's brain incurred yeah. uh, in any given event especially of se repeated events over a season as I was mentioning with like Sexton he has these repeated over and over again so like just to say these levels go back to baseline he get concussed again they increase like the, it's not saying like how bad the brain injury or the concussion is so that's the other limitation like how and i suppose how do you do that because you nearly need to mris to assess that but then with cte you don't see it for like seven to ten years after it yeah so. exactly i was gonna say that it's just kind of sitting there and mm. one day it kicks in and yeah everything is upside down yeah so what do you think do you think it's useful i think uh, it's definitely useful yeah and I do you think, think uh it, it it's kind of just 
trying or do you think in a way it's treating the symptom of a problem that's occurring in a lot of these sports where they're not really willing to maybe sacrifice the 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 intensity or the high impacts that occur within it Oh, look, it's easy for me to say this because I, I will never be, <laughs> I will never experience that pain of getting smashed into the ground by a rugby player. But first of all, transparency, like every, I think every player like these days, they know the risks associated yeah. with either playing rugby or American football or whatever. So there has to be a transparency of what are the risks. Um, of I what think everyone knows up. the risk is though that like... Yeah, I, I, yeah, but I think it just had to be said that like they yeah. know they know yeah, the risk, yeah. right? Because I don't think you can if you start changing the rules and 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 take away from rugby what makes rugby rugby, then it's not gonna be rugby anymore. You yeah. know how it, it might sounds insensitive, but like if you start taking away things from it, and then it's not gonna be rugby anymore, right? Yeah, we, no, we, I totally. We totally like rugby. The, yeah, I think um, like what the player I talked about they weren't aware of these risks at the time and i think nowadays they are but who's to say like have they done enough in the future with this so uh that's that's all like you can really kind of hasn't nfl addressed the issue at least uh and some work being done i think they did (laughs) i didn't really look into it i i think they're still it's just like I don't know how you get around it with NFL because that's the whole point. You you smash the person, you smash the defenses, smash the yeah. attacking. You're there to smash people. I don't know how you can make that less. Like again, you're chain. You're not, it's not NFL anymore if you're stopping that. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, Unless the players themselves will be like, okay, like look, like th- this is not worth. Like this is not worth. But the it, thing like, is, you know? is the, the other weird thing is with these in college player you, players they're getting scholarships to play football so they can't yeah. go around oh i'm t- this is too dangerous i don't want to do this like they're getting their get, their scholarship be cancelled so uh, i think and that's then it's the like, whole problem of american colleges and the sports <laughs> program right so i don't think a test for concussions is going to change the way they run their colleges over there well if they yeah yeah i suppose if they can help players no definitely uh, anything that can help players have something i always think having an actual test that can help players show that like i'm not well or like maybe they think like they mightn't be fully with it but they're like i think i feel a bit better today i'll definitely do it and they'd be like no your limit your levels are too high you shouldn't be shouldn't be putting yourself in these situations Mm -hmm. so and yeah it's just trying to minimize the risk of cte happening because it is such a an awful awful disease or syndrome that happens and it's very preventable so yeah yeah. Well, preventable in the sense that you're not gonna play rugby, or preventable in the sense that you're gonna play rugby, but there's gonna be way yeah. to protect you from it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. To have proper pr- procedures. So, well, I um, think it's a it's a limitation of our current technology, right? Yeah. Uh, the way we can detect it to the level of accuracy that we would want to, or why there is no sort any sort of imaging technique that you can actually observe the condition of a brain <laughs> yeah. um and detect these things as they're happening i i think it's a it's a limitation of a technology or limitation of our time i think mm. yeah but it just the question is how long will that limitation be there how so how quickly are we able to do something about it right 
Yeah. And I think this uh, be c coming up with this uh, profiles of uh, uh, of the brain damage or whatever you would like to call it it's um it's definite it's not the first but uh, uh, but it's it's a huge step towards the right direction i think yeah yeah definitely um yeah so that was what i wanted to talk about um hopefully they'll yeah they're doing further work on this so it'll be interesting to see if it actually will be implemented in the future um and i think as well with this whole covid pandemic and the the technology that's brought on with uh, molecular testing i think this is definitely a field that can be used when hopefully this pandemic ends and we don't need to do testing for covid anymore maybe they can implement the, these yeah. machines or equipment to do testing like this um because yeah. they'll be present in all these hospitals so uh, oh yeah. yeah yeah you finish doing the covid test you start doing cte tests <laughs> concussion tests concussion uh, tests yeah so that was all I wanted to say uh, thanks for that no um, problem Evan good stuff good stuff um, uh, I, I always learn something new from you perfect and now it's your turn to yeah, extend your knowledge blood substitutes blood substitutes to me I'm, you left us I, I was like tantalized <laughs> by like waiting to hear what was going to be said in this follow up so yeah so I'm sure all our listeners were as well. Uh, we're coming back to the blood substitutes today. I've already explained um, in the part one the concept of hemoglobin and why red blood cells make such a good uh, carriers of oxygen. So today we're actually gonna look into um, look into three types of different blood substitutes, and I will highlight in each example a one product that either has gone through clinical trials, either is accepted or either clinical trials happened but the results are nowhere to be found oh uh, interesting <laughs> so yes so we're gonna start with the hemoglobin based oxygen carriers so we're gonna i'm gonna start with um, hemoglobin um, based oxygen carriers and the uh, example of example of a product would be uh, hemopure then we're going to look at pegylated um, hem hemoglobin-based uh, oxygen carriers. And the example here is sanguinate. And the last but not least is perfluorocarbon emulsions. Um, slightly different from the previous two. And uh, we will also look at how do they perform in clinical trials, because I think this is the most important bit, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to start our story with the hemoglobin oxygen carriers. As the name itself suggests, we are actually using a hemoglobin that is free of the cellular membrane of the red blood cells. Okay. And so hemoglobin is the, um, is the oxygen carrying component of the red blood cells, as we know. And in this type of product, we can either use a semi-synthetic hemoglobin or actually uh, naturally human hemoglobin. Okay. Either human or bovine hemoglobin. There is a, you, you, have a, you can choose this or this. And as I said, it could be um, either chemically modified or uh, conjugated and cross-linked with different polymers. And, and using, it all started with the using of cell-free hemoglobin. So you basically uh, supply a hemoglobin as a molecule um, into the patient bloodstream when it experiences a blood loss or when it experiences deoxygenation of a tissue. Yeah. Um, and it has the, the, the hemoglobin itself has the ability to outlaw oxygen 
in plasma and it's actually even more efficient than than what it is enclosed by the red blood cells because of the barrier that the cell membrane creates itself oh, yeah. so, and there's no uh, danger of it like oh no there is a danger oh yeah because that's what i was thinking with hemoglo free hemoglobin like mm -hmm. that's the whole point it's in a cell like it exactly yeah but they uh they did try it in uh, that was like in 1950s oh right uh, <laughs> and of course when we talk about blood transfusion, like the military is definitely interested in that sort of science. Uh, yeah. If you can keep your troops alive, that's good for you. So, uh, of course, well, not of course, but in 1950s, US Navy treated several patients with the cell-free uh, hemoglobin. Uh, however, a large number, number of them developed renal toxicity and cardiovascular complications. Yeah. And, uh, and they had to cease that studies. Because that's the hemoglobin will just build up in the kidneys. And yeah, damage. exactly. And uh, you know, there's also liver liver damage. The free hemoglobin uh, is actually spleen is also damaged because that's where uh, hemoglobin also goes to. There is this whole conversion of hem hemoglobin into bilirubin. Yeah. That is uh, finally uh, being extreated together uh, so together with the, the liver. Yeah, but if you have too much of it, it will damage your liver. Um, yeah. So it's not good. <laughs> it's it's basically not good. But the uh, the idea was there, right? It's um, it it does work, but it just works, but also causes you to die. So <laughs> preferably not a preferable <laughs> it method. It saves you in one way, and then you die in another. So <laughs> exactly. So, Don't think it's helpful. <laughs> so just they about. <laughs> So they kind of uh, moved away from uh, from this free hemoglobin. And they started introducing some sort of modifications. Um, so one of the problems it, there was uh, with the free hemoglobin is that it wasn't w retained in the circulation for long enough. So not only it was causing toxicity, but it was cleared very quickly from the uh, from the system. Yeah. So now they uh, start introducing um, intracellular cross-linking in human hemoglobin uh, between different subunits of the hemoglobin molecule itself. So if you don't know how a hemoglobin looks like, it's built of subunits, it was explained. Um, and this, this product uh, that uh, where they um, cross-linked subunits of the hemoglobin showed increase in circulation resistance time up to 12 hours compared with less than six hours of unmodified hemoglobin. So, you know, 12 hour circulation that gives you enough time to kind of oxygenize the, the the area that needs the oxygen at the time. Can I ask, like, is it much, what's the difference between just giving them hemoglobin? I know with the toxicity, but yeah. in this situation, like, why can't they just get red blood cells? Like, was the hemoglobin just easily stored or really easily accessed? I'm just like, oh, yeah, because yeah. of the whole blood group in and so Yeah, yeah the, the whole blood group that, that the red cells yeah. are linked with. And especially if you're talking about combat situations, it's just like you have the pack there. You have the pack there and you you know the blood supplies um it's also its blood supplies are also poor in the regions usually when the war happens. You, wars usually don't happen in developed countries. It's usually like the yeah. developing countries. So the whole bank trans, uh, blood transfusion um establishment in these countries is not really efficient and it, you know the, the 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 blood could not get into you in time. Yeah. So having something uh, like that, that doesn't require cross uh, testing uh, and could be just easily put into you, 
yeah, and, yeah. and and keep keep you alive until you get the appropriate professional medical mm. care in a hospital you know that could be just the bridge that's gonna yeah uh, that allows you to stay alive but if this bridge causes you you know to have renal toxicities it's yeah. not it's not the best solution but anyway uh, as I said, they started introducing this modification, so they increased their, re their circulation uh, resistance time. But now, but after they did that, they did the study again, and it showed that the cross-linked hemoglobin uh, showed a 72% increase in mortality rates in human patients oh my co God. compared with saline and clinical trials were discontinued. Jesus, um, right killing people. Rightly so. Um, <laughs> rightly so. How was, many people did they kill? <laughs> Hope they got I, their money. <laughs> I don't Damn. know. I don't know the 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 accurate number for that particular study, but yeah, if you're if it's a seventy two percent increase, you know that <laughs> you're probably not gonna sell this to anyone. Um, so now we're getting into the Hemopure, the compound that I actually mentioned um, at the start. Uh, it's based of cross-linking of it's a cross-linked bovine hemoglobin. The cross-linking reagent is uh, it's a form of a carbohydrate, and uh, again the cross-linking allows for higher molecular uh, weight of the cell-free hemoglobin that retains oxygen-carrying properties while minimizing the association and rapid clearance of hemoglobin. And this product is actually in use. This Hemopure. In, okay. South, in South Africa, clinical trials with Hemopure uh, showed reduced need of additional broad transfusion in cardiac surgery. And as I said, Hemopure received a clinical approval in South Africa for acutely anemic uh, human patients and it's under phase three clinical trial in States. Oh, and okay. uh, I think, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna say something that might be a lie, but I think this particular form of treatment, um, they also consider it to uh, to give it to people who who can't receive any more of blood transfusions. Oh, okay. So uh, if they have developed so many auto antibodies. Well, not auto, allo antibodies. Allo, allo antibodies. Uh, they have developed so many antibodies um, that that it's just a risk of transfusing them. So that's why uh, this Hemopure seems pretty interesting. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a, it's it's still a free hemoglobin, just intelligently uh, modified, so that causes minimal damage, having uh, the most benefit it can it can it yeah. can guarantee. But it it's only used in a specific p patient population, like yeah. So yeah. Um, it's still very limited in who it's going to be used for. Um, uh, that's true, but I think if it still you, was the first step. Yeah, but you, I think you, we have to think about these blood substitutes as an actual therapeutics rather than thinking of them as a replacement for blood. Yeah. And as with every other therapeutic, you don't just give it to any kind of disease that have overlapping symptoms. Like, you know, loads of different diseases can cause anemia or um, because anemia is not a disease, it's a symptom. So that's why I think you have to have this product tested for every single scenario that can cause mm -hmm. anemia, just to make sure that in this scenario, this product is safe to administer. Yeah. And in this scenario, this product is safe to administer. You know, you can't just say that this is, this is a replacement for blood and it can work an anywhere in the, at the same rate. I, no, this is a form of a drug, some form of a treatment, and f it has to be tested for every single scenario that they intended mm -hmm. to use. And like it's shown, it's not any worse 
then blood trans is not better, but it's not worse. It's like similar to what you would get. In I I think if you would have access to the blood transfusion, a proper blood transfusion, the blood transfusion I think will always be picked over uh, yeah, yeah. over the blood substitute. So it's really just a, it's because these patients they've not it's just they've not really other options left. That's precisely why use it. yeah. Okay, so it's kind of well, I don't want to say last choice, but in a way, it's kind of like. It's not that it's not the first choice. It's just like there's not much else they can do, and it's better than having to try and mm. type loads of different bloods to try and find a. No, exactly. Okay. It also depends. You know, sometimes you have the cases that a patient's blood phenotype is so com is so weird. Well, not weird. It's so unorthodox, and it could be the case that they already have so many uh, antibodies that you might not even find the blood in in the in the population of the country that you live in and then you have to order blood from international uh, blood re uh, bank references and that takes time as well you know so yeah. if you if you have something that will sustain you keep you alive until the actual treatment is available to you then uh, i think it's it's worth investing money anyway. yeah definitely that's that's it. you put it well there yeah Thank you. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> so now we, uh, so that kind of, I don't want to spend too much time on this uh, Hemopure product. So now I'm going to move into something that was actually really promising. Had a, uh, I think it had a fantastic result in the phase one clinical trial, and then it kind of disappeared out of the surface <laughs> of the earth. Mysteriously. <laughs> Mysteriously, yes. Another conspiracy on skeptically inclined. Uh, this product is called Sanguinate, and it's a pegylated hemoglobin based um, oxygen carrier something similar to what we to what i was talking before but this 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 peg molecule that we already mentioned where we were talking about vaccines is also used there uh, kind of gives it a different spin so uh, just to introduce you guys to this concept newer products are speci uh, specifically intended to be oxygen delivery therapeutics for using conditions in which tissue oxygenation is compromised their essential features are increased O2 affinity and minimal nitric oxide scavenging and increased molecular size and chemical homogeneity. And I think I will explain what this nitric oxide does. It's, a, it's an interesting compound that when you lack it, when you lack it inside your, uh, your circulatory system, your, your veins will constrict. So it's a vaso, um, if you yeah. don't have it, they will constrict. So naturally, nitric oxide is vasodilator. But yeah. the, the problem they had that I didn't mention actually with these uh, other hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers that they were very eager to mop up any available nitric oxide and that would just cause your, your, your blood vessels to contract. Uh, yeah, and that would also create problem with delivering oxygen. You know, when you're, when the when the diameter or the radius of your of your of your vein shrinks, there is a less less material can get through it, right? Yeah. So it's a slower rate of oxygenation. So anyway, this product Sanguinate, it's it was developed. Um, it's a, a gas transfer a agent designed to deliver carbon monoxide as well as oxygen. And again, it's a it's a it's a free um, it's a hemoglobin that is intelligently cross-linked and modified using this uh, PEC molecule. And this product undertook clinical trials and um, and results from the phase one demonstrate safety of this product 
and supported and supported further development and actually in cases of patients who suffer from sick sickle cell disease uh, I don't know if you remember they cells can undergo something that is called vasoocclusive crisis in the, the sickle cells when they completely change their morphology oh yeah this red blood cell becomes like a sickle yes cell. exactly like. yeah and when you enter this crisis what it means is just kind of becomes permanent or it's very hard to re to reverse it back and and it's very painful especially in your toes in your fingers you like your extremities it could be very painful and one they noticed that when they it was uh, during the during the clinical uh, trial studies that when they were uh, exposing the sickle cells into these into the sanguinate uh, oxygen carrier they were actually able to revert the um, oh, the, the shape the shape of the cells into the normally looking cells oh wow so the there were a really this product i think was really was being developed towards the people who suffer from sickle cell anemia so they don't have to experience this this very painful episodes um of this vaso vaso occlusive uh, crisis and as well when the cells are back at normal morphology they can work correctly and exactly yeah and, and that, yeah. that could extend their their lifespan as well because i think yeah. they mentioned the this red blood cells in the bloodstream have around 120 days but when you when you go through the cycle through the uh, cycle of being sickle cell normal cell it kind of it damages the cell and it the cell loses the lifespan as well and yeah. um, and what i was interesting is that they also in this in this in this product they also included carbon monoxide and uh, it was shown that carbon monoxide could be used to kind of uh, reduce the inflammation as well so um, oh wow so it was, I think it was a really pretty, I think it was, I was like really happy reading that, but I was like, wow, this looks awesome. And so I went into the clinicaltrials.gov and I, I looked into it, what's happening. And um, I found two interesting, two interesting studies or clinical trials. The phase one was a phase one safety study of sanguinate in patients with acute severe anemia. And here study is already finished. I think it f finished in the mid 2010 maybe 2015 or something like that yeah uh but i couldn't find no results there was no results available no on the clinical on the clinicaltrials.gov i couldn't find anything through pubmed so that was weird and then another study was actually for the treatment of vaso, vaso occlusive crisis and adult sickle cell disease patients so like they were developing it for the sickle cell These people patients, yeah. yeah and again study already finished no results available the second phase uh, study is yeah. already finished uh but i did some digging because i was like really excited about that i was like yeah. i want to know what happened to it and apparently the sponsor withdrew money and and it ceased operation so basically the study was dropped because of lack of funding, funding. Wow. is it that sad and is that um all oh, right well why would they withdraw funding like it just seems like uh as you were saying it seems super promising why yeah why would they not have uh followed through maybe maybe they were worried that maybe indeed there there be no market to sell it you know i didn't i don't i don't know if that like they've developed drugs for way less yeah <laughs> be very useful yeah uh, well it was maybe uh, we should buy the patent on that yeah and see see into <laughs> it i mean uh it's like the whole Africa 
definitely the North Africa and the South of Italy, the Mediterranean belt, they all yeah. suffer from the sickle cell disease or um, thalassemia, like just blood, uh, blood disorders. Um, it's just a pity. Um, yeah. But sure, what, what can you do? It, it, it's dropped, but the science is there if anyone is willing to pick that up. But why? Like, but I'm sure they did, if they finished the study, like they should have results. Like they hardly stopped the, or did they stop mid mid study? Uh, that I didn't find out. But mm. if the if the sponsor withdrew the the funding, it, they might have just stopped the study even before the recruitment was yeah. finished. Oh yeah, true. You know, That's if the pity. It, no, it is a pity. But um, the science was interesting of, um, of it, and the and the last uh, the last product that I will talk about, uh, I think it's the most fascinating one of all of the three of them that I was reading about. It's called perfluorocarbon, and these are synthetic molecules composed of carbon and fluorine atoms, and uh, if you can imagine the perfluorocarbon molecule looking like a spider web, around. Uh, with carbon atoms uh, all around it, um, and then on the edges, imagine that there is a, a corona of fluorine atoms um, on the edges of that spider web. Okay. So this is more or less how the perfluorocarbon molecule would look like. The size and the actual name it can changes changes depends on how many carbon is in in a given molecule and what sort of other molecules are also conjugated to it. Um, the interactions of atoms for a long, strong bonds that protect it from chemical degradation uh, with fluorine ions forming electronegative shields that around the molecule. So uh, at, the at the chemistry level, fluorine is, has the highest electronegative value if you look at the um, periodic table of atoms and it creates this kind of protective force field around this uh, molecule. Okay. And um, and another thing that is super interesting is that it, this molecule does not dissolve in water. It is liquid. It is a liquid, but it doesn't dissolve in water. Okay. And the reason of it is because of um, the shape okay. of the molecule and the distribution of the charges between the carbon and fluorine atoms uh, makes it non-polar. Well, it is polar, but makes it hydro phobic hydrophobic it, it doesn't like water it doesn't mix with water uh, so it's um it's uh, the way it it is formulated it ensures that it, it won't mix with water when you when you're gonna be injected with it and because of the way the carbon atoms are distributed um across this molecule it creates room for oxygen atoms to just quietly sit inside and uh, and uh, and they can uh, and then the perfluorocarbon molecules can transport that oxygen as a passive passenger on the train per se and it works like hemoglobin where it'll bind it in low oxygen and release it in or sorry they'll bind it in high oxygen and release it in low oxygen Exactly, and that's uh, and that's actually the main difference also between this perfluorocarbon and hemoglobin. Because as you remember, we also mentioned that uh, features such as uh, a pH, temperature, and yeah. uh, oh, and last but not least, the oxygen concentration have effect on uh, unloading and loading of oxygen. In case of the perfluorocarbon, it only matters whether it's a high or low oxygen. If it's a high oxygen. It's the perfluorocarbon is gonna uh, load the oxygen onto itself, and when it reaches an area of low tissue oxygenation, it would 
released a uh, release. Wow. Well, it's not a re- it's not an active release. It's a passive release. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Through uh, the forces of diffusion. So uh, that's crazy. It's so it's basically the same. Like it's the same, just the same job. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, blood okay. has. We we mentioned that uh, blood in itself has more to do than just oxygen delivery, but perfluorocarbon as a blood substitute used to deliver oxygen looks uh, looks really cool and i just the uh, the chemistry of it was really interesting to read about it you know how how they were able to make it um yeah. hydrophobic and actually it's not only hydrophobic it's also uh, lipophobic so it doesn't mix with uh, lipids and fats and actually perfluorocarbons are are used on teflon you know the oh, yeah. the, the, fr- the... the frying pan yeah, yeah. They That's the with, see. What was that? Because it was in the film that there was Dark the movie. Waters. Yeah, Dark Waters. What uh, do they call Duvon. it? The company was Dufon. I no, don't remember. Dupont. They, Dupont. 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 I don't remember how did they call it in there. Uh, yeah. But it had. But it was perfluoro. It, it is perfluorocarbon that makes uh, your water and your your grease slide off the, the the frying pan that's uh that's the portfolio carbon uh, so like it's basically the same material that goes into teflon can be used to transport oxygen around the body well it's i'm sure it, the the manufacturing process is somehow different but the i think if you're talking about the basic chemistry then yeah that would be true to say that it's and uh and so have they done any clinical trials yeah or? yeah i'm just uh moving into that now just let me pull up my table so actually, Perfolio Carbon had uh, altogether four different products that underwent clinical trials or uh, and also FDA approval status. Um, three of them uh, were discontinued. One had limited successes. So uh, although it sounds super, it always everything sounds super cool yeah, on obviously. the paper, but when it comes to it. And, uh, and that was quite old ago, back in the 80s and 90s, thing, thing is called Flusol DA20. Uh, the current stat, in it was approved by FDA in 1989. Uh, the current status is discontinued due to the side effects with minimal, with limited success. Then there was another product called Oxygen TM, developed in America. It, ha- it has reached a second phase of clinical trial yet it was not approved by FDA and the current status is there is no more research due to discontinuation because of the costs. Oh, okay. Um, it's too expensive. To yeah. Have. And the last one, Perfor- Perforan, re- uh, rebranded as Vidafor. V- Vidafor, I think. Vidafor, whatever. Vidafor, maybe. I think it's used in Russia and Mexico and America awaits clinical trials. And this is according to a quite good review on artificial bloods from uh, from 2020. So it's quite fresh. Uh, but when I went on to the clinical trials and I was trying to look for the Perforan or as rebranded Vidafron, Vidafron, uh, I just couldn't f- find anything about it again. Wow. So maybe it's my, maybe it's my searching skills that failed here. But um, but I, I just I, I don't know. Maybe 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 they haven't started the clinical trials yet. Maybe that's why the second phase clinical. Maybe they haven't started clinical trials in America with that product. That's why I couldn't find, couldn't find it. But it looks like that there is loads of 
ideas and products um, either that have been developed or are developed or undergoing clinical trials but it just seems that every single one of them is missing something well yeah, yeah that is not quite 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 there so i think for now we are uh, we are stuck with the classical blood transfusion i actually i asked my friend from the uh, blood transfusion service in ireland whether he hurts he doesn't work directly with the with the blood products but i just asked him like do you know anything maybe you know you heard something as since you work in the building and uh, he told me that uh, the issue of the blood substitute comes and go is every few years you can see the topic coming up and then yeah. kind of diffusing away and then coming up again so, so it's like oh someone new tries to tackle it and they come across the same problems and yeah yeah and it just interest fades and interest fades so um so that i thought it was uh for me it was an interesting research kind of going back to my uh to where i started with blood transfusion i'd like to see some of these blood substitutes coming into the play because like what do you think places like you know developing countries mm. not not fully functioning blood establishments like you know anything to help people really but w- yeah like yeah developing countries uh countries ravaged by war or like having difficulties yeah it definitely would be mm. useful if, if you um, think if you think about places like africa when there's a unfortunately still a high rate of hiv infections like if yeah. the blood trans- the blood transfusion are n- technically so are not that safe there so having yeah. something that is that has never been in different different person's body that can be transfused into you like it's it sounds like a dream probably for medics and scientists of working over there and dealing with everyday struggles but and they are right if if the product is not ready if it fails clinical trials of if the cdc of if the fda doesn't doesn't think that it's good enough then i think they are right to cancel uh, to cancel that product because yeah at the end of yeah. the day it's gonna bring more harm than good if it's yeah. faulty it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good quite it's a good area to research it's like because the there is a really good it's not like certain diseases where like you can there's nothing there or there's very limited um treatment there is see because you have the blood transfusion but there is so much potential but again it's like it's such a a difficult thing to develop like and it's not it's not like just one organ you're targeting or one part of the body it's like blood goes everywhere and you need to get oxygen to every part of the blood and like the risk of that going wrong is so high and it could affect and who knows it could affect some random something random Mm. or like if mildly affect one organ all it has to take is to affect one and then it's it can't be used like so It's just, it really is difficult. I still think, like, trying to engineer uh, hemoglobin, like, outside the body, like, synthetic hemoglobin, Mm -hmm. and trying to find a way of, like, packaging it that it can be used within the body would seem like the most ideal way, because that's how it would do it. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's just not as easy. Although I did really had high hopes for the sanguinate product when I was reading it about this um, and use in the sickle cell patients. And it's just just the fact that it had to be stopped because of the lack of funding. It's I think that's mm. the worst thing that can happen 
to yeah, the team of yeah, scientists yeah, that like they have the results it looks cool and then the the funding body says well we're actually not interested anymore and then what yeah, yeah. and obviously no one picked it up because that 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 clinical trial was not uh, yeah. engaged so if you're listening big pharma where where we can help we can collaborate yes we Please can be, give us credit <laughs> yeah we, we can be the 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 media people <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah it's it's really interesting i i think um can i actually ask do you think like we'll ever get get to a stage in well in our lifetime of non non-blood products being used i think it depends on it how good we are we at waging wars <laughs> i really so do, how much if if we're like really in demand yeah i really do think that war is a, one of the biggest driver for or at least was one of the biggest driver for scientific exploration i know it's not a nice thing to say and it doesn't mean that it's a good thing but a war creates a necessity for products and this is when a science comes to play this is where engineers comes to play this is where everything that we like study in colleges have actually a green light to apply in the real life and like that it is not a good i'm not saying that war is good war is bad it shouldn't be there but perhaps if you want to see blood substitutes maybe like what's necessary yeah. maybe yeah. maybe not to wage wars wars against ourselves but maybe if aliens would attack us that would mobilize us to but yeah, on on the series of a, on the serious note one. I, the, you were obviously joking <laughs> yeah i was joking on the serious note um i don't if things go the way they do maybe not for another 50 years i yeah. think it's just that i think it needs something needs to drive it like something a new bloodborne pathogen that like is super easy to transmit in blood yeah um, like or something like that it's really dark but so it wouldn't be surprising to me like who knows it's funny how both of us think that only <laughs> a negative thing will push science forward so <laughs> it's true though like it honestly like especially with the whole covid thing it's like massively pushed biologic bi or molecular testing and molecular like yeah research so i yeah it's it's weird that things have to go bad before we can like people don't people aren't proactive in these things yeah They're reactive yeah um, it's anyways sad. yeah so uh, okay let's let's uh wrap it up because we start rumbling about like, yeah yeah <laughs> existential <it>. issues <laughs> yeah yeah so that was really cool tom thanks on that uh i hope you enjoyed that discussion we had and enjoyed the episode just to give a summary we talked about the whole recent astrazeneca being uh stopped in some countries only re-aid restricted and we also talked about this the world health organization report uh tom again gives a mention of this ethical issues about should we play god with uh, synthetic cells exactly uh, and i give you a bit of a rundown with concussion and maybe some diagnostic tests and then tom lovely su summarized his uh discussion on uh non-blood born products so yeah i thought it was really good i hope you enjoyed the episode hopefully you whoever was your first time listening after the luke o'neill episode you enjoyed it we're definitely going to try and get some more guests on as well in the future so Sue, stick around recommend us to whoever you want and yes like 
follow us on instagram and on twitter twitter at skeptically i and if you have any interesting articles we're always looking out for funny weird quirky papers please let us know skeptically inclined at gmail.com and it's in skeptically with a c <laughs> yeah so any last words tom no i think i'm just gonna say uh, goodbye have a nice easter break stay skeptical yeah stay skeptical guys and uh bye bye